0: The scene world podcast with uh, Martin and Jörg um, on the other side yes <laughs> yes um, AJ is at the moment not available for this news bit so uh, Martin is taking over yeah. so um, news well um, before we start with the news we actually talking to um, Anthony and Nicola Coldfield and they are both known to be documentary experts and they, for some for uh, some years ago, they released the very much-known From Bedroom to Billions documentary about the game development scene um, from Great Britain from the 80s, 90s. And then a few years later, they did the Amiga years. And now they are actually running a Kickstarter for the Spectrum, the Sega Spectrum gaming scene gaming development scene from the 80s and 90s and they also said that if you are a listener to to the scene podcast and you back them in the kickstarter and you write an email to them telling them that you heard about the kickstarter in the scene podcast you can take part in a in a competition and perhaps you get some goodies if you are lucky oh that's so that's pretty nice so we will write details about that in the video version and also write it down in the link list. So don't miss it. Write to them if you listen to this. Um yeah well, so before we start, some news. Well, for once, um David Pleasants released his book from um yeah, good good question. Um I have it actually here. It's called From Vultures to Vampires. And David Plessens, we interviewed a couple of podcasts ago when he was about to write this book, and he actually wrote this book, finished it, and shipped this last week. So that's very nice. And also one of our other recent podcasts, where um, Chris Abbott, the book of... The Little Book of soundships Volume 1, as we know, Volume 2 and Volume 3 are already written and they are soon on the crowdfunding as well. So right now you can get the first book and it was very convenient. I could pick them up in the same week from the post office and pay the income VAT. <laughs> ah, So you got them from the Kickstarter so, or, or, or where did you get the books from? Yes, the... Um, from Vultures to Vampires was a Kickstarter. Uh-huh. And um, the little book of sound shapes was from Chris Wilkins. Um, and they, he had his own crowdfunding platform. His oh, okay. own crowdfunding campaign. Not Kickstarter, not Ken, not Indiegogo, but his own crowdfunding uh-huh. system. Yeah. So if you want to get the book now, where can you get it? Well, I mean, Chris Wilkins has his Fusion shop. Ah, I guess you sure. can get some copies from there. Um, Chris Abbott is working with Chris Wilkins. Chris Wilkins is the publisher. Chris Abbott is the author, ah. and Dale Plasins commonly also has a few copies left to to sell. So I guess even if you missed the two crowdfunding campaigns, you can still get the books. That's good. You know? Yeah, that's very very neat. Or if the postman. Lost it or drove over it with with, oh. the, with the parcel delivery truck or something. <laughs> I wouldn't believe it. Uh, last Christmas, I I bought a wooden disc box. Yeah. And there were there were boot and tire marks on the outside of the parcel. I believe you a lot because I bought a laser disc by myself last Christmas, and when it came, I, I, I just thought, oh, this looks like some tire squeaks there and, and yeah, the disc was broken into pieces.. Oh. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, fortunately it was a wooden wooden box and it was packed to the side. Ah, okay. so not not upside. Uh, so it was sideways. So it was stable and withstands excellent the force of the tire and the boot. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that the delivery guy, of course, held it this way that when he gave it to me I couldn't see it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, smart, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um <clears throat> well, other news, yeah, well other news are that um the Kickstarter of Watermelon Games, of Paprium, is actually going very well. It That's surpassed cool. half a million. Oh, <laughs> yes. yes, And today, so if you listen to or watch this yesterday, um, they announced the Crown Stick 4, the uh, follow up of the Arcade Stick, of the famous Arcade Stick. Which is nice because I mentioned it three times in my interview, in our interview with Quinnell, our last interview with Quinnell, that we really would like to see the Cranstick getting a re release. Um, So that seems to happen. He also announced a Switch version of the Paprium game and a mini Paprium for the Game Gear.
1: Or the Game Gear, yeah.
0: <laughs> or Game Cheer, as he said. Because he said, next gen. <laughs> ah, that makes sense, yes. <laughs> because because people were like, since when is Game Gear next gen? Isn't really right. Well, it, it was. Sometime. It was back then, yes. It was back then. Better than the Game Boy, but twice as expensive, at least in Germany. Yes. Yeah and this is why my parents said no we are not going to buy you a game gear you have to stick with the olive green monochrome game boy yeah (laughs) yeah um and nowadays it's like the game gear is very expensive and you hardly can get a working one for good money but the games nobody wants for some reason so you can get the cartridge cheap but the main problem is getting the system in a running state at first, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and other news? Well, Petro Planas, um, our Venezuelan guest that we talked last year with um, about the Venezuelan retro gaming scene, which isn't really officially a thing, because video games are illegal in the country, in case you didn't know. It's quite Quite interesting, yes. Um, video game development is illegal in Venezuela, so they put a lot of um, CEOs and people working for video game industry in prison. And actually, the most the most studios from Venezuela actually moved to Colombia because in Colombia it isn't illegal to to produce video games. Yeah, <laughs> so. If you want to hear about that, perhaps you should listen back to our Venezuelan podcast episode because it's a crazy story. I really will. I, I promise. I will. I will listen to it very soon because this is the first time I hear about it, and that's yeah, non- unbelievable. That is that is why we had his. Um, that is why we had him as a guest because it mm-hmm. was like this is interesting. We want to talk about that, and and he actually is um, active on on YouTube again. And he is actually making remixes about um, retro gaming scenes. um, Themes, not scenes, themes. And um, he just released yesterday his new YouTube video. So, way to go. Well, and last but not least, Tronimal, Jörg Ritter's house, the famous Game Boy composer, yeah. Last week shipped and released his DRP Digital Retro Park soundtrack.
1: Oh <laughs> nice. Yeah.
0: So, so a lot of lot of things is happening. Everybody's pushing out his product before Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> that time that time of the year. <laughs> so we'll have a lot of under the Christmas tree then. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Um That would be it. So I would say, let's jump over to the couple and let's talk, AJ and me, and um, Martin will jump back to his cellar. I will. (laughs) (laughs) Wait wait for the next time (laughs) he is requested. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. We are talking to Nicola and Anthony Anthony Caulfield. And um, you are the couple actually known for doing the documentary originally from Bedroom to Billions. I grew up with the Commodore 64, you see. So, uh, Nicholas. Me spect- too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, she did the Spectrum and you did the uh, Commodore 64. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. In fact, in fact. I'm oh, it. there it is. From, yeah. Oh,
2: interesting. Yeah. Nice. My Commodore 64 is over there in the corner. Mm. Uh, i don't know if you can see it from I there i think i see an Amiga
1: from here it an Amiga. Amiga.
2: the commodore 64 is just just
1: oh yeah,
2: there. yeah. oh yeah yeah uh, yeah the old um oh, what was it called
3: oh like the keyboard yeah
2: my dad worked for a company uh that made them um oh that's how i got my commodore 64. Awesome. Because, uh, he worked for a company called music sales um in the early 1980s that were, had a contract with commodore to produce music software hmm. so my dad was their chief salesman and um we i was from a family we didn't have enough money for, for a home computer at that point and when he started working there i asked him on the first day i said um you know can i have a um any chance you could get a commodore 16 because i think the Commodore 16 had just come out because i didn't think there was any chance of getting the 64 and he came home that night with the 64 the disk drive the monitor everything's here the monitor's there oh, the disk drives no, down nice, there. Nice. and the only thing he didn't bring was a cassette deck
1: um well, yeah,
2: it was a big problem. It was a big problem because disc software, obviously, was so much more expensive and
1: yeah, but much more know, difficult. Typing um, it in would be faster than actually loading it off a tape. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely.
0: that depends. I mean, the newer <laughs> games actually had a fast loading system, and that is what what many people discredit. You know, and. Mm-hmm. and um, so, um, but I mean, I mean, the UK is a, spe- is a different beast here anyway, because yeah, UK basically. was the only country where people actually prefer tape over discats you know, I don't I don't know at least for the Commodore I 64. It, I wouldn't call it prefer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, was just, it was just cheaper, I guess. Yeah.
2: yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, the availability, the expense of the, what were they, what were they, they were, the, the actual um, 1541 was actually more expensive, wasn't it, than the, um than the computer itself yes. yeah, well, right. so it just you know but i was very lucky because dad came home with i think you probably just sit down there dad came home yeah. with one and um and one and then i remember b- being realizing i would have to find so much more money to buy to buy this games and there was so much harder to, harder to find
0: talking about the british side of the game industry i have right one, oh, yes.
2: hey now the, the rarest one yeah it's uh sorry i didn't mean to immediately plug in fact it's not wrapped in cellophane yeah, but yeah. Hey, that's what we're here so, for the, this is the one yeah. that that um is extremely rare because it comes with a reversible cover
4: Ooh. and they are
2: um this is the only copy i've got of it and uh-huh. uh, so i get asked for a copy at least several times a month is they are they are the thing that basically became very rare off our original kickstarter so mm.
0: i mean this this documentary actually shaped these this demo scene and the retro gaming scene in a, in a way, because it was the first documentary of its kind. Wow.
2: I suppose it was, it wasn't it? It was,
0: yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah.
3: So, um, and, and it kind of, um, it really grew, because we initially sat there and thought, oh, we'll do maybe a film about 90 minutes long. Um, didn't quite know the story we were going to tell. Um, but then, as we started interviewing more and more people, more and more stories kept coming out, and we thought, "Oh, we'll have to talk about that. I'll have to talk about that." And before we knew it, we had a two and a half hour film.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And I mean, the initial timeline that we did was running at about ten hours. I mean, we have so much material, and and now that we've done three films, we've got what two
0: hundred and sixty five hours—near
2: just under three hundred hours of, yeah, of stuff, of but,
0: footage we've not really wow. used. Wow! That's uh, have well, read I've read somewhere that the author of Jet Set Willy was the hardest to get. I don't remember his name right now. It's totally sad. Pardon? Matthew Smith, which I've got. Sorry, I'm not
2: trying to be Flash. He's just whipping out props. props. Be (laughs) Flash. The props are great. See, that's uh, that's Matthew Smith. um, It's Jet Set Willy. That's the software. Well, it was only software projects. Software projects version of it. Yes, that's right. He was extremely hard to get. And he was... um, um he was lovely he doesn't you know he doesn't do many interviews very private
3: um and we we had a really lovely time with him we were there for like most of the day and it was just really nice to chat with him because so many people had said oh he's such a lovely guy if you get to meet him and everything and yeah it was nice wasn't it
2: it was i think when we were making that original film I think there was um there was a what what surprised me I mean I was going to show you this I know you had Andrew Fisher on but yes. this is kind of what Of started. course yes he's, he's one and, of and our one of I was so us.
0: surprised I was exactly. so surprised that he actually wrote a dedication to me in the foreword of that book I well that's the thing this book
2: which I, I like to plug Andrew Fisher whenever I can um, because I, and I have told him this, and he's he's uh, I don't want to say shy, but he, he's very very nice about the way he takes it. But I I bought this book um, because I was a, obviously just like everybody else, uh, a fan of the of the Commodore sixty four from from a, being a, a child and wasn't really part of any form of scene or Facebook group or or anything like that. So when I saw this book, I had to have it. I had to, I had to get it, read it, and then discovered Retro Gamer because um, Andrew contributed. Ah. And it kind of went on. And then I went and spoke with Retro Gamer. I was talking to Darren Jones, actually, of Retro Gamer, only the other day about this, because we've known each other now for like 13 years. And I remember going to see him in about 2007, 2008, and I said, do you think there's any appetite for a film about retro games? And I have to say, I've always had a problem with using that term, retro games, because if you listen to the beatles or something you don't sort of say you're going off to listen to retro music it's just you're going off to listen to music but i think for the purpose of this conversation you get what i mean and went to see darren and he said absolutely you know we've got a readership there's there's a growing community of people and it never went away i will say that about chris abbott chris abbott was there during the really barren years he kept kept that flame alive and, and others yes. like him during those really really barren years and um he um and then you know but nothing ever came of that that particular project with Retro Gamer because um, the company we were working with, EMI, suddenly went into all this financial trouble in 2008 and it kind of went quiet. And then I think a couple of it never went away and it was an idea on a piece of paper. Um, story of games industry sort of thing, not necessarily the UK. And then over the next year or two, we discovered the whole idea of crowdfunding and refining the idea a little bit. And thought, why don't we just find out what happened to the British games industry? And we genuinely didn't know. We didn't know the answer. It wasn't. It wasn't like we secretly knew. We'd read a book or stolen the idea of somebody. It was just, what? Have, what actually? You know, what was it like to experience that, living through the British games industry from the voices themselves of those that that were part of it? And that's where yeah, it came yeah. from. And we had a originally we we approached daniel craig to do the narration for the film and his agent didn't say no he said oh you know might be interested so we were sort of oh wouldn't that be amazing having james bond as the narrator and then as it yeah, went on so. yeah not that it. he said yes just to make it absolutely yeah, yeah. clear it wasn't like a yes it was kind of right. come
3: back when you've got something yeah, more he might be together. interested yeah so yeah. so
2: we sort of thought and then we went away and we shot edited it shot a bit more edited it and then we started to feel it was working better as an ensemble, which you know you're not using a narration, which is a nightmare to edit. It's an absolute nightmare to edit something where you have no narration, and it's it you do see it, and it's it's we'd never done anything like that before, not not just with no narration, and it just sort of grew out, didn't it? It was very very much an yeah. evolving project. But it's
3: very very complicated not using voiceover, because you have to make sure everyone's kind of you can tell the story through obviously what they're saying. You've got oh yeah can't just say oh we've got no one saying that what do we do you know so we had to make sure we had everything covered when we were doing all the interviews um sorry but because we were so thorough with the amount of interviews that we did it all kind of worked but um but everyone was so lovely it was so nice and we we did so many interviews where they'd go on to two or three hours because I don't think anyone... Many of them hadn't been interviewed for so long. So it was really nice to sit there and learn their whole like life story from where they started to where they were at, at that particular time. It was great, wasn't yeah. it? Rob, yeah.
2: Hubbard, um, Rob Hubbard, I think, said no yeah. four times. Oh. Uh, and it was just someone
1: him a fifth time.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and now now Rob Hubbard says yes to everything because he yeah, likes to be yeah. interviewed and stuff.
1: I, I, I love that. We've had that kind of the same experience with people where they really want to talk about like their lives and whatnot. And a lot of people haven't asked them these things or they haven't been asked this stuff in a long time. So, you know, you sit Absolutely. down and say, you know, we usually, you know, have our podcasts span about an hour. But I mean, uh, the, the stuff we've got in the archives that we had to remove, you know, that is just amazing stuff. Yeah. And you've interviewed some really amazing people,
0: uh, mm-hmm. Roy Schiltz as well. I was most impressed. Oh, as, that uh, well, to get in reaction <laughs> took four years or something, because many people just even don't well reply to emails anymore or something.
4: Yeah. yeah.
0: So that's <laughs> course, um, uh, Roy thing. Schiltz was was a special special. Yeah. Complicated kind, you
2: know. Yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, It's it's an interesting. It's he's certainly an interesting guest and can certainly talk a lot about twin galaxies and. Oh yeah. Um and competitive competitive gaming. We interviewed Tony Temple once,
1: Mm. and
2: he said he said I love Roy, but sometimes when I'm playing and it's a dark, you know, like is he going to be behind me? What's going? You know, (laughs) just how competitive is he really? Does he really want no competition? So yeah, it's. uh, I love competitive gaming. I mean that that was another thing we um, we kind of did these. We did these short films for Atari in 2010, sort of a couple of years before even started from Bedrooms to Billions on, um, I think Atari had just changed hands again and the company were trying to sort of beef up their image and we kind of sort of suggested some um, like history of, Yar, I think it was Yars' Revenge and Missile Command and yeah. a couple of classic Atari uh, Atari titles and we made these short films which never got released because Atari kind of imploded. Um, mm-hmm. So we sort of thought that was a shame. And when we did those, we met Paul Drury and Archer McLean while we were making those shorts. So when we then um, had the idea of Nick, I believe Nicola was the one that came up with the name from Bedroom Stabillions. Um, when, we, when we decided there. we were going to tell the story <clears throat> of the British games industry, we came up with a rough list. And then I remember having a long chat with Paul Drury and Archer McLean and a few other people um about who would you like to see in such a film and then i think we drew up 12 interviews or 15 interviews and then it became 20 and then 25 and then 30 but it was done in clumps of filming as i was saying earlier so you you sort of shoot edit a bit see what you've got and move on it's not it's not really actually it's not the most budget friendly way of making a, a a documentary but it's it's a sort of way you do it when you don't know the answer So if you go into it with a preconceived idea, right, this is the story I want to tell. This is the conclusion I'm going to want, blah, blah, blah. You can pretty much just hire a couple of locations, get everybody to turn up, pretty much get them to say what you want within reason. I'm not suggesting you put words in, but, but, and then you come away and you can edit it very, very quickly with from bedrooms. It was every, there was so many different (coughs) opinions we needed to keep interviewing to eventually get to a point when we thought we had a, a sort of a general consensus almost of, yeah. of what happened. And the big one was what happened in the early 1990s, because we were looking at Companies House and other research we're doing. We were noticing all these British companies just disappearing, just vanishing, going bust or being bought. And we kind of wanted to understand the uh, the reason for that. And obviously you can watch the film um, to to fully, fully uh, glean that. But um, second I mean, film I mean- was,
0: sorry, Karen. There, there are some exceptions. I mean, Hoosen software, for example, is still around now as Hui, Hui software.
1: Huey,
0: software, Hui, Huey. Huey, exactly. Yeah. By, by, uh, by his son. So that's is, right. He's taking the torch there, and um, I wasn't suggesting,
2: by the way, that everybody died out. Or anything. I was merely just saying, obviously, <laughs> as consumers growing up through the eighties, you know, we were buying gate and the, and it seemed like there was obviously that. Concern. Well, the
3: industry evolved. Didn't yeah. It? It's, it's yeah. To what it is now, and it just changed. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So they got. Inevitably. Stuff and, yeah. It's just the the way it goes i guess but i mean in terms of interviewing people it got quite complicated by the time we got to the playstation revolution because then obviously we were interviewing people in japan and in america and they are very all of them are pretty much very active still within the games industry right (laughs) so in terms of locking people down and certainly in terms of japan it's very complicated because you have to go through all the different levels within the companies and everything but we got some fantastic names for that but that would be one interview you couldn't clump them together it was generally one interview and then a month later you'd be able to get someone else or someone else and then america it was very hard to put groups of people together because they were so spread out you know some were so in such remote places some of them and we had crews that we were working with out there because it just wouldn't have been cost effective for us to to be able to go out there.
2: Right, We'd have been
3: out right. there for years. Yeah it meant I? we could
2: spend more money on the actual film itself yeah. and yeah. Um, so well, I mean a lot of from be- pretty much all the interviews from bedrooms we shot ourselves. Yeah. Meagre years was probably about 40% and the rest were external crews because there's a lot of Americans yeah in the and uh, canadians in um in the amiga years
1: so it was all remote
3: wasn't it we were
2: that's
1: we were right. on
3: little screens in their yeah. rooms or
1: wherever And that's, so that's funny too because you know the amiga as an american i never really i never even saw an amiga until um just a few years ago and and never had one i wanted one but they just weren't a thing where i was yeah no it was a year it was um it was a european
2: once once uh they redesigned the original A one thousand into the A five hundred and got it more sort of what you would consider I will be murdered for this, uh Commodore friendly. You know, effectively getting it yeah. into a sort of one yeah. to eight like case. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is and we can get the production cost down and everything. Europe seemed to it seemed to thrive. Um obviously Germany, the UK, there was obviously certain countries where they just they just grabbed onto it. And of course what fascinated us with the Amiga when we were making from bedrooms to billions and some people ask us this why did we do the amiga is next was we were we were realizing that a lot of people were using the amiga as a development machine mm-hmm. they were designing graphics for all, all sorts of other platforms that obviously migrate eventually to the pc because really the a1000 was like a pc 10 years early but um mm-hmm. that's well it might be the right the right place to say this but so they they realized that they um i think once the a500 started to take off it did become a, a more of a european thing because obviously the the consoles were leading the way a lot in the in the us yeah. there, was, there was a healthy computer market for quite some time um in the us
1: yeah yeah I yeah and then everything as far as gaming a lot of gaming switched over to consoles so that whole yeah. computer market that was dominated by the Amiga and the atari and stuff like like uh, my history, like I, I went straight from eight bit to, you know, to a Mac, and yeah. there was no in mean, between. there was no sixteen bit Amiga or Atari era. They just never occurred.
2: But of course, the Commodore sixty four was was fairly ginormous in the U S. Yes, that was. was that was yeah. As yeah, as was the Atari the Atari eight hundred though not as much mm-hmm. as, but it, it also established a fairly healthy computer base in the U S. Mm-hmm. Didn't it with that? Oh, yeah. And the, the Apple two was always. It was very popular, but it was always priced so much higher, wasn't it? It was always they took a while for that to come down a yeah. bit. But even the Atari 800 was a thousand dollars. I think when it first came out, I might be. A couple it? Of, wow. I might be a couple of hundred out there, but I think it's certainly upwards of a thousand dollars. So the idea of a, um, um, you know, eventually the Commodore 64 being so cheap um, was also helped by the ZX Spectrum. This mm-hmm. machine here, we're going to be talking
1: about soon yes. in our new film. Because,
3: every, time, every time I'm there, respect him and it has got rubber, rubber camera on. You, you,
1: you are right. You, the, the Atari 800 sold for $1,000, which is the equivalent to wow. $3,500 in today's money. That's right. That's, that's a it. lot of money for an yeah. Atari 800. It's a lot. Of, it's a lot. Of good system, though. Very good system. Very, very C64-like. And, and that's yes. because Jack Trammell was mostly behind There's a lot of that. Yeah. Mm. So.
2: Yeah. And they, they had... um. But it was a, and I also, I do seem to remember there was a lot of very fine, very, very fine um, Commodore 64 coders that,
4: mm-hmm. that shot
2: their tools that were on the Atari 800, that loved the Atari 800. And of course it was Star Raiders on the Atari 800. There were so many developers that we spoke to on, on From Bedroom to Billions that got their, learned their chops on for games on the arcades. But when they saw Star Raiders, on the home on the atari 800 there was a huge number of atari 800s sold in the uk just for people wanting to play star raiders but yeah, it's obviously yeah, not a game yeah. that i don't i don't know how po- i mean i consider star raid i've um, got the original cartridge
1: over here, i believe
2: yeah there's an atari 800 um an atari 800 uh, star raiders the original star Ra- archer mclean <laughs> once um he did give it to me i was like let's that like i stole it from him but, um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah. it's a it's a game I think should be should get a lot more recognition because it was a, such an early sandbox game, and oh sorry we're going off on tangents again. It's massive. That's important.
0: okay. <laughs> I mean I mean i mean i, I wonder, um, Were you aware at that time that Bedroom to Billions will be a huge success, and uh, was that movie the reason you decided to go on with the Amiga years and then with the PlayStation and now with the ZX Spectrum? Um,
2: I think the answer has to be yes, is yeah. not it, really?
0: We d- yeah, we just kind of, like I said, it just started off as an
3: idea that we thought, oh, this would be f- fun to make. And then it just grew out of that. And then as we were making it, we realised that we wouldn't be able to include as much as we wanted to. And so there's loads of parts in from bedrooms where we think, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could go into That's more detail on Amiga that? That's the bit where the Amiga
2: would have come in, wasn't Yeah, it, in so this- we
3: think. Oh, the Amiga, we could tell much more about that. And then we thought, but well, we can't get it all in a film. So maybe that would be a separate film. And then we look at the Commodore sixty four and we think, Oh my god, we got so much that we could go we could do another film just on the C sixty four. We knew we could do another one on the spectrum. So it's kind of it and, we was like, on and we are trying to
2: do one on
3: yeah. the C 64 Oh we are trying to do one on the C sixty four. But it was um, <laughs> it kind of set us off on a road where we thought, Oh, there's loads of different areas we can go into. But we wanted to keep going up until the present day. And then we thought now we can go back and pick out some bits that we want to do. And we thought, well, maybe we we thought we'd start with the Spectrum. And then the idea is to do one on the C64 and
2: mm-hmm.
3: other, we have other ideas, but we want to focus specifically on certain machines.
2: I want to go back to the Amiga at some point as yeah, well. I mean,
0: the Amiga, there's a lot of unfinished so business footage.
2: with that. Yeah, yeah,
0: the a 500. Yeah. The okay, A55. So, uh, so, so you are thinking up a second one about the Commodore 64 and the second one about the Amiga. Interesting.
3: Yeah. Yeah, that's our thinking because we just have so much footage that's not been seen and there's more people that we'd like to interview. And so we thought, yeah, we can we can go back to that because we can only touch on it in the films.
2: Because if we wanted to do something, <laughs> I mean, we thought about, we've been thinking for some time. The, we were always thinking Commodore 64 is 40 years old, um, And it was my it was my machine, though. The key thing that is important for any Spectrum fans listening to this is that that I was I was enjoying the Spectrum as much as the Commodore because everybody I knew had a Spectrum. I was the only one out of my group of friends that had a Commodore 64, and that was only because my dad got it. So I was in an extremely lucky situation and I loved that machine to pieces. But I was going around people's houses and playing on the Spectrum all the time. And I think the reason I'm saying that was that the Spectrum itself as a computer, because it was so cheap because it lowered the, the, it lowered the barrier of entry so much. Commodore, for example, had to compete. So they right. had to lower prices as well. It had an effect on it on so many things mm-hmm. because if you could literally pick up a, I mean, think just when you go back before 1977, right? So you go back before 1977 couldn't get a home computer. I know there were kits and there were, there, were, but I'm I'm talking about walking into a shop and getting a pre assembled home computer in a box take it home, plug it in, will read the manual and away you go. It was a lot more complicated. It's something we take for granted nowadays. Right,
0: right. Yeah. For True. And, and that is, well, that is, that is that where Commodore pet, came with the PET, pet machine that in 77. Was that 77 or 76? 7, Seventy- 77, I think, right? Oh. 77, the PET, pet was first. Okay. Yeah.
4: Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, because was, 77
0: you know, is always seen as the start of, yeah. of home computers. Nobody,
1: nobody realizes that the first one was PET. Everyone always looks at the Apple, the Apple ones. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it's faster it the pet. Yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah. It's right. It was the, it was the availability of the current processors at the time. The 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 chip prices, I think, have come down to something like twenty five dollars a chip. So it was a, uh, it it suddenly was, and I think um, Chuck Pedal and others were looking at it from about 1973, 74, and knowing that things are going to come down, and we better have a system ready um and leonard um leonard tramell told me um um we we're working on another project a couple of years ago and he, he said to me that he said chuck he was there when chuck gave um his dad the pitch about about a home computer and his dream for home hmm. computers that eventually it'd be in everyone's home i know a lot of creators get that that attributed to them so i'm not suggesting oh chuck was the very very first but um there were people in that era that had that dream of, of wouldn't it be amazing if, if we could make home computing cheap enough so that people could, if they wanted to, could grasp it. And of course, children ended up doing that, yeah. you know, and games was just an entry to it. It wasn't It was so much more than just games. And I think that's another thing that perhaps people could miss. We, we enjoyed typing listings in i mean we enjoyed so well, much about the it.
3: magazines i just sit there i spend an entire day lying on my front on the floor staring <laughs> at my mum and dad's tv with the spectrum and just typing in all day and i loved it and i remember so well the day that i went with my mum and dad and my brother to get my spectrum it was it was just it's just magical i absolutely love it it's just one of those really <laughs> lovely memories you know and opening it up and thinking wow what can I do with this? You know, Yeah. yeah. it was, uh, I, I love it. Like I say, well, I'm great memories. I guess like when your dad brought home your C64.
2: Yeah, yeah. He said, do you want to come to the, do you want to come to the, uh, I remember cause I said to him this, I think the 16 had just come out. I might be wrong on that, but I remember I, I certainly knew about the Commodore 64 and I knew he was going to work for music sales that had a contract with Commodore. So, cause I, so I said, dad, any way you could get a computer. And he said, I can hardly go into work on my first day and get a computer can i anthony it's gonna take several weeks maybe we'll see what happens so i literally had no expectations at all they were gone and then that night when he came home he said do you want to come out to the back of the car help me out with something so i was like, oh what's it going to be you know went out and there it was 64 in its original well, it's packaging awesome. over there yeah just wow. you know and that's the thing isn't it you open it up it's the manual you start to and it brings you into Definitely. that
0: world. yeah yeah i mean i mean there's and um, the C16 was actually, according to Bill Hurt, when I interviewed him, he said that was more a thing in East Europe.
2: Yeah, there was what? a. Um, I can even remember the advert in the UK that we had. I think it was a school kid, and he was sitting there, and I think the price was 139.99. I seem to yeah. remember that from the ad. It was a sort of a. Um, and of course, um, what was his name last? Oh, we interviewed him for the Amiga years. He was very proficient in the C16. Um, uh, he he, cre- he did Lotus. What's wrong with my brain? This is what happens to me. It's Lotus. Lotus. He did, he did uh, Kickstart uh, Kickstart too. Please don't make me use Moby Games while I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> Kickstart so, Sean Southern, Southern.
4: Yeah.
3: and I well, didn't look go. at
2: anything else. I just he finally came back, um, and Andrew Morris. So they uh, magnetic fields. So um, Sean was very proficient in the C16 he made it sing unlike many others he was amazing mm. yeah, yeah i sorry, think
1: the, the, the 16 up. was pretty big in in the uk uh i, I know that because it it shared a lot of qualities with the with the the spectrum uh, yeah you know and, you know like the lack of sprites the, the the games look awful similar because you know with the 64 you're using sprites and this and that with that it's mostly character driven and it's you have those color fields where like you know your your guy changes color as he walks over that way yeah you know yeah. it's like there's a lot of like when you look at the games there's a lot of similarity between them
4: well you come out
1: the 16 in the uk Is that and, interest uh, that's a good question um probably 83 or 84
2: 84.
1: were they around that that early oh uh, yeah i would say so yeah um uh, it was released in release date was 1984.
4: Yep. Yeah. It.
2: yeah. Well it Yeah. So it was an attempted. I'll have to check on this, but it was obviously an attempt to try and knock into the de- put a yeah. dent spectrum sales, and it failed.
1: Yeah, that, it was certainly in that respect. Came directly at the, the spectrum and the the TI 99 4. Yeah. No, you think about it though,
2: the Spectrum would have been established for two years
1: mm-hmm. two years plus
2: at that point, selling for a hundred and sort of thirty odd quid. And right. I'm trying to get why a hundred and forty pound machine two years later would actually right. be yeah. a competition for it. But then again, Amstrad yeah. released that console, didn't they, in nineteen ninety, that was a um, an eight bit eight bit console I seem to remember in nineteen ninety. It was sort of four years too late.
1: Yeah. Um, Anyway, so well, and and, C- and Commodore was putting out the, the, the C64 games console thing back in yeah, the GS the early 90s, the yeah. game system, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: they're like, Oh, yeah, Nintendo, we've got one too. And Nintendo's <laughs> like, Yeah, we're not doing that anymore. Have you seen that before? Yeah,
2: hmm.
1: only a decade earlier,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I forgot I, about I that. I mean, I mean, I mean, the thing is, um, they actually, they actually use units, um. That were on sale in in Norway and, and Denmark and actually um, made them real Commodore 64 again afterwards because they didn't sell so actually mm-hmm. those units got recycled back then which is also why the GS is pretty rare nowadays of course yeah. it didn't didn't sell so well, mm-hmm. um, well I'm pretty yeah, sure. Go.
1: Couldn't understand why it wouldn't have sold so well. No keyboard, and most of the games needing a keyboard. <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. I mean, actually, I got one, and I mm-hmm. got one also. with those cartridges yeah.
4: um,
0: shipped with it, and
1: <clears throat> yeah, yeah. One of the cartridges they shipped with it needed the keyboard.
0: Exactly. No. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yes. They they um they had they had a version of Terminator of Terminator Two. Um, or, or was it Robocop? I think it was Robocop. Uh, I <laughs> don't remember.
1: Don't yeah, remember. That, that fine, fine. RoboCop Commodore marketing department. Um, and, and
0: I remember, I remember that you had to pre- that um, it was a collection, a music collection, and the game, and you has to you had to press the the key, key, the K key, the K key, to actually select the game and you couldn't because there was no keyboard
1: and if if i if, if, if i needed an anecdote to explain commodore to somebody that's it because that's just like you know, the guess. that's 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 commodore in a, in a nutshell right there
2: i might be able to tell you a st- another story here but I, I might have some of the details wrong and so speak you or some of your listeners might shoot me down for this but i can't remember if it was atari or commodore all right, I'll have to check my notes, but I'm trying to sort of make, I'm making this up as I go. So somebody, and I'm going to, for the minute, say Commodore. So, you know, I just want to forewarn everybody. I probably got the. Com- I very- might have the company wrong, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure <clears throat> it was the Vic 20, that there was, there was something they needed to get it into the, um, what's the huge catalog they have in America, in the States, that really big catalog. The catalog. Ca- the oh, yeah, catalog. The
1: catalog yeah,
2: And it had to, and the, to get in the catalog, the stock had to be there by 1st of September or something, either 1st of October or 1st of September. And they had this huge production run of VIC-20s and then there was a, there was an error on the board. There was something which basically meant they wouldn't work. So someone said, just ship the empty boxes, mm-hmm. don't worry, because then we'll recall them in, in end of October and just swap them for the correct stock. And that's what they did. And apparently mm-hmm. they did it for almost every year after that because there was always some production issue or something. But this was I'm sure it was Vic 20.
1: Yeah, that sounds so, about right. Yeah,
2: it, <laughs> I think it was the Vic 20. But that whole concept of just shipping mm-hmm. it to simply get into the Sears catalog. Oh, it's uh, yeah, oh,
1: there's so much oh, of that the the, the 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 sparkle effect on the C64 where they just changed the rather than fix the problem, they, they just changed the color to blue so that you wouldn't see the sparkling. <laughs> yeah. Right, you know, like it still does it. It's just it's just invisible now. And if anybody I, knows, I'm, it's a feature. And yeah.
0: That's it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I just looked it up. It was indeed Robocop 3 that was um, re-released for the right. C64 GS alongside um, Chase HQ2, mm-hmm. which was interesting because the GS um, shipped with uh, with with the only joystick on the Commodore 64 that had a second separated fire button. Oh really so you you could press it for uh, for boost in chase hq2 um because on the commodore 64 you had to press the space key for
1: that yeah even though on the on the the 64 supported two two buttons on the joysticks and just nothing ever used it no exactly which is sad because because i hate the one thing i hate about c64 games is up (laughs) on the joystick to jump yeah Yeah. that's just yeah it's wrong it's just wrong yeah. everyone knows that there's a button you're supposed to push to jump and everyone also knows
2: is that if you have to use the space bar in a game everybody goes oh uh-huh. so I still remember yeah. in commando on the Commodore 64 requiring the space bar to fight to throw a grenade mm-hmm. or oh. i think it was in um there was some fighting game i'm trying to remember what it was now where you had to use space bar to do a kick yeah and just you know it's where do you position it down by your foot so you can use your toe because why you've got a joystick to just yeah. what do you use yeah right right, quite, right never quite well i'm trying to remember what game that was now
1: Double or crash. games where it's, it's 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 only keyboard controlled and and so the left half of the keyboard is for player one the right side of the keyboard is for player two and it goes from being a friendly game where you're just staying to your side of the keyboard into a slapping match <laughs> <laughs> renegade just
3: leaning over
1: yeah.
2: renegade was the game that needed the spacebar i've just remembered mm-hmm. on the um uh, on the on the C sixty four yeah so yeah, yeah. yeah.
4: thank
2: God yeah. it's coming it's coming in but it's yes, coming yes. in mm-hmm. delayed action
0: tonight yeah <laughs> interesting mm. yeah well so, so um, uh, let's talk a bit perhaps about your upcoming movie aesthetic uh, Spectrum yeah. anything that you already can tell without spoiling too much
2: um, well we've only just um, we've only just launched the Kickstarter for it um, we I launched it about ten days ago. And we weren't, we just weren't quite sure what the what the feel would be from the Spectrum community. And I think one of the things is, is we do get a lot of fan mail from Commodore 64 and Commodore fans that want us to do something for the for the Commodore. So we were looking, we were moving both projects forward, and we knew that one we'd have to start first. And there's a there's a there's a lot to sort out with the Commodore one at the moment. So we sort of thought, right, let's focus completely for the, for the on the Spectrum one, them, and let's try to make make a film that kind of that all in that would basically interest anyone in who's got interested in in old games or home computing because the, the spectrum itself is um is is a is a wonderful you know a british treasure as 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 we call it but what we started to understand was actually how popular it was in other countries um and in main, many cases due to it being cloned so we sort of thought okay there is actually potentially quite a large audience for this that's going to have an interest in a in quite a quirky but certainly very very interesting interesting story about how a computer went through a, a, a <laughs> series of uh, of evolution from you know mk14 right the way through eventually through proof of concept to the what is this is this 48k one isn't it yeah yeah 16ks yeah. over there yeah. um to the 48k um spectrum and we sort of wanted to explain but get a make a film that sort of showed how so many people certainly in the uk and europe got into in uh, sorry and the world as i say once we learned about the the clones got into coding and programming simply because of how cheap it was and that meant that their parent it was a viable option for their parents to invest in it and it, it brought the computer into the home and um you know we've we've run the, we've set the kickstarter off and we've got a what we think is a nice piece of art and we've got some support from oliver Frey, and who's generously lent us some of his artwork and John Harris, who did the famous ZX Spectrum manual, ZX eighty one and ZX Spectrum uh, manual covers.
0: I mean, I mean, the thing is interestingly. Perhaps we can talk about that. Um, Why is it, by the way, that um, in UK, I think it was also the case for the Spectrum that tape games was more a thing because um, compared to 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 discs. I think it was mainly because of the price point. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I don't know if tape games for the Spectrum were also as cheap as for the Commodore 64, or if that was a Commodore 64 only thing. Yeah, I th- you know, it's a
2: very, very interesting question. Um, when we were making from bedrooms, we we discovered that basically everybody's thought was just to back up to tape yeah. and to produce tapes because tapes were cheap. Tapes could be sold. Um, and I mean that it was a little bit like that in the states to a certain, to a certain degree, a tape or a disc in, in a in a bag. But I um, I think in the UK it was more the availability of being a, a, the of, of cassette tapes were, were sort of plentiful, um, and I think that you know we could genuinely put up perhaps with five to six minutes. I have to be honest with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to actually experiencing learning more about why that was the case in the UK, because as a schoolboy myself in the UK. I, I had to, to buy a game. I had to save my dinner money up and it was a lot wow. quicker. If you were like, for example, I remember a game I saved up for on the Commodore 64. So we keep coming back to the Commodore 64 <laughs> but, um, was hero, which I've got somewhere. Um, but you know, hero from, from Activision, sure. um, John Van Ritsen's game. And the, um, and it took me 10 days of no lunches to earn 999 to get, walk into this game shop and buy it. It was available on disk, but it was nineteen ninety nine. So it would have been. Mm. And I sort of lo- and it was a single load anyway. Once, I, you know, I was really relieved to know. But um, it was, they were all so much more expensive. Usually five, se- sometimes 15, 17, 18 pounds. I mean,
3: I just connected my tape player to my
0: Spectrum. And, it could,
3: and you to have to adjust the um, screw, the little precision screws. the, the, the,
0: the so adjustment like, of the read write head, right? Yeah,
3: it little. Thing, but, but, um, but, but I don't see with the spectrum. It was always.
2: It could just simply be that the spectrum yeah. sort of being a hit first established a tape based market, mm. and and Commodore, even though they had a, a disk drive which was more expensive than the Commodore 64 itself, it was just too much too much of a novelty. Yeah. But why would that then be the case in the US? And you know, if I'm actually asking that
0: question, I'd like I'd, I'd be interested to know, to know to how, how to what was the, the price difference. Used to go. So, so you think probably it was a spectrum that introduced the tape being cheaper first. Hmm, could I be. don't know that for certain. Oh, I don't know. Actually, okay. actually, I made a mistake here. That screw wasn't wasn't to adjust the head. The screw was to adjust the speed mm. of the tape motor. I was making a mistake here. Yeah, um, the
3: sound. You could always tell whether your game was loading or not. And if it wasn't, just address that screw very
4: slightly,
3: and then you'd sit there for about six minutes while it loaded. um, yeah, but I only ever remember tape for me.
2: Yeah, I mean,
0: you, you you never had a disk drive connected to your Spectrum?
3: No, I only ever had all my games. Oh yeah, all tape. And this game. I always go on and on at Anthony about this. I love this it's game. Of it's Horrors. called Chamber of Horrors, and I bought it in a sweet shop. And I've never found anyone that's ever played it before. I mean, maybe just people didn't like it. I loved it. I found it so difficult. You got it working for me, didn't you?
2: Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, I <it> did. <is.
3: laughs> I thought it was a brilliant game. It was, it was a very good game.
2: I think we've yeah. all got those those games that you you know aren't classics but there's something about them that maybe a, situa- a, classic, a situation I mean. in your life at the time that just made you feel better or whatever it would be sometimes we've all got those guilty pleasures like music there's certain tracks that other people can't right. stand right. and i think um yes i did get true. chamber for as horrors, horrors working for you and it was a i think it was it was, sh- it. it was a shocker yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: that's true <laughs> it was was hard
2: wasn't it yes it was was totally understood i'm not i'm wondering how much playtesting actually went into it Uh, to determine
0: uh, uh, oh that will do or whether so much bucks in it or
2: where is it Mm -mm.
0: uh or what do you mean
2: that's the game. Sorry, did you ask what's in the box?
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, because you said there was not much play testing in, in See, it, and I thought like, because it was so bug written or something, or was it just ga- bad clip no, play- gameplay it, or what? It was just a really hard game to play. But whether ah, that, literally looks like
2: exactly as many like, games were back then.
3: That is like new, that's been stuck on know. by
2: the distributed by the the uh, by Omega themselves, I'm assuming, um, because the label's wonky. So it's straight on one side but it's wonky on the other 1984.
0: 1984. well i i i once bought um um unopened copy of forbidden forest and really? those 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 labels look like they were they were uh they were um well put on <laughs> unevenly by a student or something in a quick yeah. hurry and the manual was photocopied in a bad quality. And this was this an was original game you could buy from the store. So, um, I, I, under, I especially the British publisher, sometimes the smaller publisher. Uh, I, yeah, Forbidden Forest was from Cosme. That was really bad quality. It was not so bad. Paul exactly. Norman's game, wasn't it? Poor exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. The famous Forbidden Forest from Cosme, from Paul Norman, yeah, and I rem- and and those British publishers, publishers especially, had such a bad reproduction quality that that it looked like somebody who did it at home. That's know. and that's exactly where that's often they were with done. The mail
3: order, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah,
2: that's the thing. I remember mm-hmm. Jeff Minter saying to me that. he's boxes and boxes in his room in his house you know and they're putting the labels on themselves putting them in and then out because they've they've got to get an x number of thousand out by a certain point no one's making games back then and well, maybe it was that's
3: where it came from all tapes because they're cheaper weren't they yes and they're yeah. easier to do at home and post it. i don't know when we, we'll answer this question yes yeah, so i'd
2: like to know where yeah. <laughs> because that's the other thing i remember interceptor <clears throat> software as well they had a, they got a, a, a tape replicating machine i'm sure of it yeah. we've got some footage somewhere of um of the uh, of the owner of the company talking about it richard oh blind me! i can't remember his surname now but there you go i told you my brain's uh, brains wearing out but um okay. sorry where did we even get to i have no idea yeah uh, well
0: i mean i mean talking about the the tapes that is actually the reason why many games uh, in their disc version are very rare nowadays. I remember looking for many, many years for an affordable copy of Last Ninja on disc. No chance. And um, Last Ninja System 3, I actually got it for like, um, for like 120 pounds. Yep. I thought like, okay, you can't get it cheaper than that in a perfect condition, in a clamshell version. I was like, okay, this is wonderful. And here's the thing, you you totally could see that System 3 didn't didn't care much about the disk drive because the loader they used, apart from the copy protection, uh, the the, uh, spindle motor, uh, the stepper motor of the drive was constantly turning. So it was never stopping. So it was actually a drive killer. Um so, Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and I I also bought a loose disk version of the NTC version that was published by Activision. So what Act- Activision actually was doing is they removed the whole fast loader mechanism, um put in their own mechanism with their own copy protection and, and it. And even they made a, they introduced a system that automatically detects whether it runs on NTSC or Paul machines. That means the American version is a better version than the original British version by System 3. Wow, yeah. So so if you get a version and you don't want to kill your 1541, especially <laughs> the first version with the internal power supply that uh, that tends to overheat, get the American version because they have a better disc drive loader in it.
2: Um, that's good to know. I think it's, it's hard enough to get last Ninja. I think I've got a copy. I think I've got there's one in out. here somewhere. Yeah. I think yeah. I've
3: got <laughs> somewhere.
2: Um, yeah, I have got one somewhere.
3: Yeah.
2: Now I'm going to be paranoid thinking, where's it going? Oh, the, yeah. it I'm not going to keep showing you the back of my head, yeah. but yeah, it's, uh, there's definitely, yeah, I think I've got quite a few disc versions up there. I've got, um, these are all Commodore 64 disc up here. So I've got, um, and that's the thing. They were rare. I think one of the rarest I've got, uh, in terms of just simply at the time in the UK was this is original beachhead two on disc, which, wow. which okay. um, still got the manual, still got the wow. disc, um, that literally, that was one of the very, very few games. I actually saved it. There you go. I went, probably went without lunch for 15 days to get that one that's why i lost weight in the 80s it was saving up for my uh saving up for my games but i've got a few disc versions and i do seem to remember as the 80s went on and it got like 87 88 you could start getting secondhand games by that point and then you could start picking up disc games at the pcw some of the big trade shows and you could pick up disc games like a fiver
3: i got them at zork at a car
2: yeah they they these are disc zorks yeah zork. can you see
0: that from where i am it's not, well very tiny um but but i but i but i understand where you are going to yeah, yeah.
3: i found them in a uh a car boot sale
0: um, uh, we've got a lot of scott adams yeah, games yeah. as well on
2: i don't know if you know yeah. scott adams but we've got quite a few scott adams games on disc but that's more true, true. just true. um uh wanting to collect them but yeah i think yeah. It, I, I i'm 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 going to assume it was probably the influx of tape-based of of, um, of tape-based products because of the because of the spectrum, but that's one of the things that that's the, the how genuine we are in terms of when we make these documentaries. Um, we try to go into them. If we don't know, then we want to find out, and that kind of means we come at
0: it in a slightly different way. Um, I should know that, really, actually, but um, interesting here. Interesting here. You mentioned Beach Beachhead 2, right? VTE2 yep. is a special game because most people don't know, but um, the original tape uh, tape recorder for the Commodore 64, and um, that was actually coming from the PET, and that had no counter in it. Right. Um, at least, at least in America, in Europe, in Europe, the first uh, disc, um, uh, the, sorry, the first data set in Europe actually had a counter but um, the first American version didn't. And Beachhead 2 is one of those rare tape games where, where it doesn't really allow you to play the game if you don't have a counter on your tape drive because the first thing before you play the game is the game asks you to to write down on a piece of paper the counter numbers of each level. So... Really? so Yes, yeah, so... Um, So that that when you compete a level or you lose a level, it can tell you go to counter this, go to counter that. Um, So you actually had to first, well, write down all the numbers. And that that means that the Americans, when they had one of those early data sets, they couldn't play the game because they didn't know where to rewind or forward the tape to, to which position fascinating that's fascinating
2: i think that's the thing because it allowed you to play you could play the levels individually Mm -hmm. couldn't you you could actually like the like the summer game series yeah you could um you could just visit those obviously we live in the uk where we used to multi-load um on cassette it was just it was it was part of it and it seemed to be that nearly every u.s game i can remember so many u.s gold games that were in um where they were importing uh, American titles into the UK. I think were multi-load all the Summer Games series, Winter Games, all right. of them were mul- Were multi-load, but that's fascinating. But,
0: but mostly, but mostly it would just say, turn the tape and rewind completely. That's it. But <laughs> but but Beachhead two didn't do that. Yeah. Technically a broken game then. Well, if you are unlucky to have one of those early tape decks, then yes, but. Most most of them have the counter, of course.
2: Yeah. Rob Hubbard told me about a game. I've got it on a deleted scene actually from, from Bedrooms, where I, I can't remember what game it was. Where it was, he, he started. He got a Commodore sixty four, and I think before he even started composing music, he um, he he got this game, and it wasn't that good. And he said he just got obsessed with completing it, and he got near the end, and then there was a jump, or there was something that he couldn't do. Um,
3: it was a girl's name or something. Oh, yeah. I Pandora. Remember. Oh, I can't remember. It was a girl's
2: name. That's right. It and then and then he couldn't make this jump or he couldn't get to this bit. And it drove him mad and he nearly threw the game down in disgust. When he eventually started coding, he, he took the game to pieces and found out there was no way past that bit. The code just stopped. The game wow. just stopped. And it was just assumed that you, that you would give up. So the developer probably just got bored of the game and made the jump impossible mm-hmm. so that you could never make it and then but by that point yeah. you probably had a games worth oh you know it doesn't mm-hmm. matter i think there was an ocean game wasn't there, where there was a ladder that was impossible to get to i'm trying to remember what it was an arcade conversion my brain tonight sorry well
0: ocean isn't really known for good conversions sometimes
2: no their mm-hmm. quality did it drastically improve though um as as things as things progressed but yeah they uh because they, they had the, they bought the Imagine label, didn't they? They bought the, um, the Imagine label separate, and then used it, I think, from what I recall, for arcade conversions. Um, and sort of kept that label separate for for a while. But um, I digress again.
0: Yes. <laughs> if if you have so many deleted scenes, perhaps you should do a, a new movie just c- compiled of those deleted scenes. We have thought about it, but in a funny sort of
2: way, um, there will be some of those. I don't want to call them deleted scenes because they never got used in the first place. But I would say probably the best thing to say is the pool of rushes that that we amassed.
3: They're going to come out within our film. So like, there's loads of footage that we didn't use that covers the spectrum, uh, game making of various things. So we want to use that. We do want to bring that out within this film. And the same will be for when we do one on the C64. We'll release some of the footage that's not been seen. Because so it'll be it, part of the it, film so itself. So it's all part of the film. Or if, if it's, a, it might be a really good extra if someone's sending a really good story. thing. well, it won't work in the film, but it'll be on the disc as well. So, yeah, we do want to get it out. But we like to get it out within a product that, you know, that we're doing. So if it's a film about the C64, we'll put the extras in there to show it. Because, yeah, there's tons. There's so much. There it's is. lovely, so much wonderful footage.
2: I and mean, we've, we've obviously got so much stuff, so many composers for the C64 we've accumulated over the years. Chris Holzbeck, Hubbard, Martin Galway, Ben Dugley, she's uh, sadly passed away. And um, But so
3: little of their interviews have been used, because obviously when you, the films that we've done where you've got everyone talking and that, you only maybe use about, at best, what, 10, 15 minutes of maybe a three hour interview?
2: But we also we do have another project, which you are the first place in the universe okay. <laughs> to hear about it. Uh, there's a uh, we're launching something in um, in the near future. It'll be out before Christmas. Um, totally separate from the ZX Spectrum film that we're doing and, and the plans we have for the Commodore 64 and Amiga um, is uh, it's a it's called Cabin Fever and it's. This is the star of it, effectively, because in this cabin uh, is a huge collection of games, but also movie memorabilia, comics artwork lots and lots of things that we've got signed things all sorts of stuff and and so many people have said to us when we're making these films we do all the capturing and other things for them in this room and that's why all the stuff in here is made up of our collection of stuff but also things people have brought john hare brought came in and brought some stuff and all sorts of people um have have dropped stuff in this room over the years so we decided to make a show out of it and um Mm. while we're doing some of the capturing for things and talking about games and talking about music and other things, and we call it—it's called, it, called Anton Nick's Cabin Fever. And if you like, if depending on obviously your time, I'll send you a short segment if you want to actually potentially incorporate it in your show. And it'll be the first time anybody has ever seen it. And with the first sure. episode is Commodore 64, so um, sure. it'll be a little bit about that. But that's that's been a lot of fun to do, and that's kind of accumulated over about the last eighteen months of of things that we've been filming in here. Um, and we just set the cameras off um, in this room and we just recorded it. And it started yeah, to.
3: It's a bit more like conversational, I feel like. So it's just a bit of gameplay and then talking <laughs> about the games that we're playing. So, yeah, it's quite good fun. I have no yeah,
2: idea it was... if it's going to be of any, you know, you, it's one of them things where you sort of just see this might be of interest to people or it might not. But there's a lot of um, insight into how we put stuff together. That's one mm. thing that people would learn, <coughs> people would learn from it. Um, and, you know, that's that's kind of what we've got coming up.
0: Yeah. I, I guess that is a bit like Brian Becknell when he did his uh, Commodore Rise and Fall on the Edge in 2005. He didn't know that his book on the Rise and Fall of Commodore would kickstart a whole series of books That's based right. on retro computing and stuff. Yeah. Um, That's right. So, so I guess you never know how where things go. You do just do what you think is, is a good idea to do. Yeah, um, that's quite right.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and you just follow it. I mean, anybody that's making something, whether they're making a game or whether they're they're re- uh, like with the right. spectrum next, there's been all sorts in the last few years. Um, a sort of connected love to this to the and that's another thing, by the way. When we were making from bedrooms to billions, people such as yourself and other members of the scene reached out to us because they were interested because they were pleased that somebody was looking to try and do something about it and from our point of view we were we were excited interested by the the shared mutual love we had for the subject but also a natural feeling of doing something that people are going to really enjoy. And that's kind of what we want. I, when we go into a Kickstarter, we're very genuine about it. it. We're not, I think people get lost with Kickstarter sometimes and think you've already got all the stuff done and you're just selling pre-orders. And that's not what Kickstarter is really about in spirit. And that's not what we're doing. We haven't made the film yet. We don't, we literally, yeah. when you, when you back one of our projects, you'll learn about it as we make it. Um, except with this particular one on the ZX Spectrum It's coming out Whatever happens next, uh, for next Christmas it's, We want it out and done in a year We don't want any reputations of taking Longer every time yeah. we did to, When we did all our Doctor yeah. Who stuff And things like that in the, in the uh, 2005 and 6 and 7 We used to knock out about 7 or 8 Little documentaries a year Um, We exec produced a lot of them, but they were um, going out through the BBC and and Channel 4 and things like that. So we were used to getting a lot of content out with these from bedrooms films. It's like a a hoover. It just you get sucked down in, in, in making them so in depth and trying to expand them out. So for this film, we want it to be 80 minutes. It's going to be voiceover driven but still with a lot of the things that our films are known for, but we want it to be 80 minutes. So it's a sit down and view in one go. And then all the featurettes that come with it, all the making ofs and other things, of course there'll be special features on there, but we want the primary film to just be 80 minutes. And that's the same with the Commodore 64 one we've got planned. We don't, we don't want, we're we're happy if people want to see us to produce three hours of stuff. And my word, have we got stuff on Commodore on the Amiga that we, you know, so much more, but we want there to be a primary film that's a bit shorter, so that you can you can just sit and enjoy it at that at that level in, a, in one sitting.
4: Yeah.
2: Yeah, maybe it's me not
0: being able to sit down and watch two and a half hour films all the
2: time. Yeah. That's right.
0: <laughs> and also a good point, where you said that um, with Kickstarter, you're not pre-ordering something. No, you are investing in an idea. And right. uh, it yeah. could also fail. So it's not really ordering in a way. You are participating in the Financial backing of a product and hope that the financial backing was successful in the end. And That's the good thing, the good thing about your movies compared to many other Kickstarters is, actually, people who who missed the the IndieGoGo or Kickstarter or whatever, they could actually buy the movie afterwards from your homepage.
2: Yes, so. um, though this particular one. Um I I think people will have to understand then this one won't be quite the same. There will be a version that will come out, but it's not going to be this version Um, because one of the things that we, we get is that people don't quite get is when we made from bedroom civilians, there was a lot of comments saying, I'll pick it up on Amazon in in a few months time, but we've never made this version available again. Mm. That's why they sell. What is it? 250 pounds on eBay and silly, Mm. silly stupid prices. We try and
3: keep our um, Kickstarter ones specifically for the people you know that are factors and and then they get this unique copy and then if we do release them onto amazon and that they're they're not the same version you know they haven't what? got reversible covers they haven't got the oliver Frey artwork so if
2: you're a collector you want you want obviously to try and get the original one but it's yeah. t- i mean the from bedrooms films are, um have a distributor So obviously that's, you know, they've got a different cover and and everything else, and that's brilliant. But what we try to do for the Kickstarter ones is load it up with lots of, um, with lots of stuff. Make them
3: collectible, you know, so they are, they're a bit different. They have the slip cases, they have reversible cover, different artwork. So yeah, just, just to make them. Different because we think if everyone's come in there and they've really supported us. As
2: we, we keep looking over there, by the way. We've we have got a picture go. of it up there. That's why we. we keep like, we like at, our poster. It, so it looks yeah. like we're looking at it all the time. <laughs>
0: yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think I remember the Amiga years actually came in a metal box, if mm. I'm not mistaken. No, it, was, uh, it came. So
2: it might
0: be the slipcase. It came so in yeah. a. It
2: came in a slipcase. Oh, slipcase. That, so, that was. Yeah, so right. that was an Oliver Frey um, drew it for us and um, yeah, on the backs of on the back of a giant um, yeah that was a that was a nice that came with a nice slipcase, and we also did i can't this one's sealed at the moment mm. this is one of the rare uh kickstarter ones so these yeah. are the ones you can't buy um they um we did a nice i think was it 12 page there's a nice color 12 page um um booklet in there as well which is lovely because we were given some pictures by dave needle um and dale luck um, and that was um I think it was um the a one thousand, the first the first one that rolled off the production line was in Dave Needle's house, because p- obviously Dave sadly passed away only a few months after we interviewed him.
0: Yeah, I so heard, it was,
2: yeah. It was, um, you know it was quite a shock um, when RJ told us. so it was um it felt very special. of course, he told us some quite amazing things which we put in the film. He gave us, you know, it wanted it all in there. Certainly about the the Atari story about about um, faking the, um, mm. the, chip, the, the the chip the chip there's diagrams.
3: Still a lot that's not in there as well.
2: So. Oh my word! Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think probably the big thing about the Amiga is is obviously we were telling a hardware story to a point, and then we wanted to show the game development side of things about what then happened. So it's almost like two parts that film. Um, it's quite deliberate. And and I think people, some people were really into the hardware story, the history of Commodore type part of the story, and whereas we always will lean towards game development, so we wanted to see once the Amiga was out, what how did it affect game development? So I think personally. Um, what I would want to see next from us in terms of the Amiga is more of a continuation of that Commodore story and the later versions of the Amiga. Certainly one thing we did edit up, which we never use is about an hour long is the story of the A 500. And of course we've got Chris Holzberg. We've got so many people talking about it, but it it would have made the film four hours long. Um, So no no chance. So that's something we've always wanted to do something with. If anybody out there is listening to this and they're interested in any of the films that we're thinking about doing um, just sign up, we can just write to b2b, b2b at graciousfilms.com and we'll put you on the mailing list and um, you can stay up to date on what we've got coming up.
0: Awesome. Um, I wonder, by the way, why did you decide to go for a PlayStation um, documentary after the Amiga years?
2: Um, th- the, do you want to answer that? Well, it's only because I'm talking all the yeah. time.
3: So. <laughs> I think it was more because we wanted to come right up to the present day didn't we that was more of our
2: well from bedrooms Thank to billions you. there were two things wasn't it the that came yeah. from that first film was when was the amiga kept coming up yeah and the playstation kept coming up yeah constantly because that they were massive effects the 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 cartridge era the the 16-bit cartridge era as popular as it was actually had a, a, a had a negative drag effect on on europe and certainly the shovelware era crept in Um, And then when the PlayStation came along, it was kind of almost like going back to the home computer days again with a lower barrier of entry. There was still a barrier to entry for the PlayStation. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting you could just pick one up from down the road and and start programming. It's discs as
4: well, isn't
2: it? But it was PC-based development.
4: Yeah.
2: You could work with a PC. So it kind of did go back to, whereas you want to hear some of the stories we've heard about working with the Saturn. Or working with uh, trying to work with the mega drive you know they did get their hands they did get their heads around it obviously and there was a lot of divert, great development from european uh and of course us studios for um uh, the genesis mega drive and and the snares but i think when the playstation came out again it felt like a story we needed to tell because it affected there was a massive ripple kind of to like the development a, community a, like
3: a turning point yes like. that's what i mean it's like yeah. if the whole if you put all three of our films together, there's so many areas you can go off and tell different stories. And I think that's kind of what we are doing now. It's going back and thinking, oh, there's an avenue to go and explore. There's an avenue. So that's kind of what happened when we were with the PlayStation revolution. It was like, oh, we. That, I think that's a good angle to go off on. Let's discuss the PlayStation and the impact that had. Um, but then we've had people saying to us, you know, you haven't done Xbox or... You know, certain, yeah, there's lots of things and we think, oh, well, we could because like with all the interviews that we've got, we've got so much ma- material. Um, so you never know. We may go off and, and do that as well.
2: I mean, if there was enough support, we probably, you know, it's something where we might even, there's a lot of people obviously doing YouTube now. This is part of the reason why we decided to do Cabin Fever because we kind of like the idea of getting output out a bit quicker. So Cabin Fever is a way of us doing stuff and getting it out a bit quicker and people also sort <clears> of, getting a feel for the way we make our films oh, and yeah. stuff. Um, and I think the um, I think that that was one of the things. We've also thought about Patreon possibly. And maybe we could put some of our episodic things into Patreon. And if people want to watch our stuff, we could release something every couple of weeks in a half hour segment. Maybe that's something we could we've certainly got the material to do that. But it would be the only way we could really do that is if we were able to convert enough people into Patreon simultaneously to then so we can afford to do it, and that that that's the thing we actually do this for a living. Yeah. All, so,
3: all food for thought. Yeah, I think, yeah, really.
2: We've made films now for twenty more than mm. twenty years now, so it's it's kind of what we do. So that's the beauty of that original from Bedrooms film it gave us the freedom to make it because there was such support to do it. Because if we didn't get the support, we couldn't have afforded to make it and I think that's stuff. why we
3: we enjoy Kickstarter as well is because you get to actually engage with people that are watching your your stuff and that's quite nice you know i like that and we get lots of people asking us various things are you going to do this are you going to do that and that's really nice we like that because it gives us little ideas and people will tell us little stories think oh i haven't heard that before that'd be really good to include that and we like that so that's why um although kickstarter can be quite nervous because you think oh god hopefully people want want to see this made it's just nice to see that people are getting behind us and and supporting us which is lovely
2: <laughs> yeah i remember like the demo mm-hmm. scene section in the amiga yeah. years that was a pleasure to do and we had like another hour of that i mean that was it was
0: yeah. it could have done
2: a film just on the demo scene
0: mm-hmm. Maybe we just just to ask you um the difference as i said between uh, kickstarter and non-kickstarter versions so it's basically um bonus material that is missing and different artwork or different yep. covers or the packaging it'll
2: be it? the packaging and also what's available on the disc ah. so uh, the version that might that will come out after all we're concerned i mean all we are concerned about is making the film and producing enough copies to cover the the backers we're not mm-hmm. um and then we move on to another project and then if we mm. get a distributor they can distribute it and it'll be a cut-down version of it. So, like, there's a special edition of From Bedrooms to Billions. There used to be, and now there's only a standard version of it. So, there's a lot of there's people out there that have got that six-hour version of From Bedrooms, which has got two discs on it, but you
0: can't buy that anymore.
3: Yeah. So we only fulfill for our our Kickstarter.
0: Um, I have to admit, I don't really remember which versions I've got because I have I've backed so many Kickstarters <laughs> in my life in the last nine years that i really can't back all the projects at <laughs> yeah. once and at I think some
2: point everything we've ever done i'm yeah. pretty sure you've always i just i just remember you always having something posted out to you i think you've always supported us
4: yeah
2: but you've always been there I, i've always known of you since, since we've started out so
0: even yeah. even that alone has been supportive so yeah, yeah. it's um Really? Yeah. Well, yeah. well you know you know the thing is when you make something like we do with scene world you don't really know, you don't really know what people think about it outside of your own bubble and you don't yeah. don't really know if people know about you it's just some, sometimes we hear about it like you you were like i think you were replying within 10 minutes to that email saying like yes of course we can make an interview so so I was like, okay, yeah. he seems to know. He seems to know us, so I don't have to write a big introduction <laughs> about who we are and what we do and stuff. It's you know? so relieving
2: as well. Well, obviously that. I mean, I did know. I did know all about you, and I've obviously I've listened over the years. Not or not every episode, but certainly. Uh, people like Andrew Fisher, and you've had some pretty amazing, m- amazing guests on. I think that's that's the thing. You've got to keep trailblazing and and just yeah. keep going, going for the biggest guests you can because they will. People do like to talk about their about what they're interested in. I mean, we I've certainly thoroughly enjoyed this enjoyed this chat, and I I was actually concerned. And this is a voice. I'm saying this to that Commodore 64 Amiga backer out there. That's thinking I couldn't back a ZX Spectrum film. That's I couldn't do that. But back it for us because we want to tell stories about that about that era of home computing. And we want to keep doing that. And we can't do it unless the community supports us in that. And we want this film to do well just like just like all the others. And there's gonna be stuff about Commodore in there. You know there's gonna to have to be some stuff slipped in there. But um a little bit, I promise. But yeah. It's, <laughs> well, I mean
0: basically basically <laughs> we, 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 we cover everything, you know um doesn't doesn't really doesn't really matter i mean if you if you think about it if you think about it pc dos and dos retro gaming scene is growing a lot in the last years so so basically you could make a movie about dos games you know
2: (laughs) isn't it crazy when you think about it how things can suddenly become retro
0: Mm.
2: you know i remember in 2006 the idea that the playstation ps1 could be considered a retro machine, and now we're thinking that we're putting the 360 into that. The Xbox 360, the PS3 is a retro system um, in certain ways. The PS4 will be so I mean, it's just um, it, it's just crazy um, how things come out, and that's why I don't tend to use the term retro because I sort of think it's sort of a, it's a collective. You know, we can have this debate all day about whether games are art or whether they're this or entertainment or whatever it is. But I still think that if somebody's sitting down designing something, they're creating a piece of art because art affects you even if you hate it it's affected you in some way it's like art does Mm. so i've always felt that they lean toward their entertainment but their art but and you know when people go to art galleries or go and listen to music they're doing it to be entertained they're doing it because they enjoy it so i still think it comes under that but i'm not here to prove whether games are are art or not but we do very much like to champion their the cause and we've always had such a soft spot for programmers over the years Mm. the great uh, um I think programmers themselves, um, coders, are uh, misunderstood in many ways, and I think often they're just frustrated, d- internally frustrated, because they kind of want people to know really how clever they are, because they are very clever. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, we kind of always had a soft spot for, for coders as well along the way, trying yes. to champion that.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the the things about a new system coming out like lately, the Switch. And uh, mm. 2017 is um, breaking the barriers and boundaries of what is what is possible. Um, for example, uh, Doom, Doom, and Wolfenstein 2 to port it on the Switch that was deemed to be impossible. Similar to when Lemmings was released, it was said that this can't be done on the Commodore 64 until it was finally done. Yeah. You know? and 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 there are many examples on the ZX Spectrum for example, um, 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 for example, um, um, Power Drift or um, think about Street Fighter or something, those games are pretty good on the Spectrum, you know, despite the technical challenges, you know. And and, uh, another famous example is uh, Chase HQ, which is just horrible on the Commodore 64 because they ported the Spectrum version to it without any modif- modification whatsoever. So um, I didn't know about that, about a conv- um, what it was just
2: ported straight over.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true.
2: Wow. That's interesting. Though yeah. so it it does...
0: It's brutally slow and it's it's awful.
2: Of course, Midnight Resistance is very good on the Spectrum as well. Jim Bagley's game—it's uh, that that runs that runs really really beautifully. I think I think that's the thing as well. Is I don't I don't when we were kids there was playground wars, and there was my computer's better than yours. It did you know it did go on. And and Commodore users would laugh at the color clash on the Spectrum, and Spectrum users would laugh laugh at the chunky sprites on the on the Commodore 64. But then the Commodore 64 users could always come back and say, "We've got the music, we've got the musicians, you know, you don't have that." But that eventually changed. Spectrum eventually, obviously, did eventually end up having decent music on it, and and everything as the later iterations proved. Right. And I think it just one drove the other. So mm-hmm. I think the I think the Spectrum itself. Um, it could you could create beautiful art and and high resolution high definition um, artwork and be very dainty with your with your artwork on the spectrum i was talking to mark mark r jones today ex um uh, ocean and he was talking to me actually about though he used to do <coughs> Used to do stuff for the Commodore 64 and the and the Spectrum, and he just said for him personally the Spectrum, which is as an artist, which is easy to draw for. It was just because you could go in and be so much more dainty dainty with it. But of course you had the issue with colours, so you had to then be more creative. Yeah. Um, it just I think you just accepted it when you when you had that a system like that back then. You knew its its um, drawbacks, and you kind of just turned a blind eye to them. And of course we did have on the 64 some quite stunning beautiful games that came out that continued to come out um what was it project Firestart. i think that was quite a late
0: that's, release that's amazing yeah.
2: yeah 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 stunning yeah. but there's a game funny enough we're talking about that um when developers get so good at a system like 10 years later what was the game that um doug newbear did for the atari 2600 damn what was it called doug newbear did star raiders did a game for the for the 2600 in like 1986 it was one of its last ever releases and it's stunning oh there'll be people shouting out now the name of it i can't remember I, I, as i said i can i can should we do it should we just look it up
0: because <laughs> never, i never never mind yeah, yeah you can if you like just
2: yeah. the, if i may
0: <laughs> but interesting that you don't know about chase chase
2: hq i didn't know about that not not the not that it was converted we've interviewed the um the creators, it's probably in that they're both in from Bedrooms to Billions. So if we look if we look up that um, um, their transcripts, I okay. bet they probably talk about it in there. yeah, he did there, uh, there, are
0: other, there are other examples. Heavy driving is another example. And the third example would be Karnov, which is an arcade machine conversion. But the special thing about Karnov is they ported the Spectrum version 100%, including the color clash and the color palettes. Yeah, we from did the have spectrum to the Commodore 64. Yeah,
2: we had that. I remember school days. I'm sure school days was was uh, converted over from the Spectrum. They never looked great. They Spectrum games never, never worked well on the on the Commodore 64. All right. Here we go. It was called Solaris. Solaris. If you look up Solaris, I know we're off totally off on a tangent again. <laughs> I have to take so, the kid to yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Solaris on the Atari Atari Twenty Six Hundred came out in nineteen eighty six. Creator of Star Raiders, Doug Nubay, a stunning piece of coding. Just what he was able to get out of that system in eighty six was quite amazing. And I love that when developers get to that point where they've just been, they're so they know every nuance of the mm-hmm. system. They know exactly what they can squeeze out of it, and their brain never stops. Can I just speed it up a bit more? Can I think that's part of the the key of coders as well is that obsession with knowing you can never truly have perfect code, but you you're going to try bloody hard to get to get it as perfect as you possibly can. And even if you get it perfect in your mind, you'll still think of a way you could perhaps make it better. And perfect good coders were always thinking constantly about can I just get it a bit faster? Can I get it looking a little bit better? We got the kids So we're gonna have to (laughs) draw it. I do hope we've given you some good stuff by the way. Um, Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. i have no idea what we've talked yeah. about we seem to <laughs> <laughs> a
0: lot a lot a lot right. yeah no, a it's lot. been nice
2: it's yeah. been really lovely chatting yeah. with you actually and i'm sorry your um um your co-host had to had to pop off but um yeah, yeah it's uh do give us a um give us a look it's the the rubber keyed wonder a new film 40th anniversary of the zx spectrum And it's the Kickstarters live now. So uh, pop in and and, uh, support us, please. Yes.
0: Thank you. Awesome. OK, have a good evening. Bye bye. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Uh.
5: Nice.
1: Yes, very good move from the Swede. Watch
2: out, the Russian York chef is always round for the big moments. Ugh, what a mess. Fortunately, the German Fregel is here with his singular technique. Ouch. Remember, yeah, like uh, the darts in um, 180? Oh yeah, real wobbly, isn't it? Yeah. That was quite good, 180. Steve Pickford artwork I believe no. I remember because yeah, at the hat it was a sort of throw Assuming he did really... the Commodore 64 art as well, yeah. Accurate kind of arc of the <laughs> uh, of the um, dart. The thing is, when you got to the last level, you had to get you basically had to match him, and it was only the fact that you threw first <laughs> that you would win. He, he threw perfect darts every oh, single yeah. one you just have to be perfect perfect perfect, perfect. Yeah. yeah you and that you literally would win on the basis that you threw before him that's it gosh that might be a tiny bit too hard oh. I think it's easy on this joy it's got to be easy on this gamepad it's just, oh yeah it was oh, hurting me by did, my did it again waggling your joystick oh I remember having to repair the things yeah, well, the old
5: Atari ones were the best. I always thought in terms of durability. Yeah, the, uh, the um Atari that's the one I played. No, 400, whatever it was. In fact, there's one behind me. Atari
2: 2600. These choices. Yes, that is a... Re- careful, it's wired in. Oh, okay. It'll pull yeah. Beachhead down. Oh, no! I lost vital oh, seconds, there. Oh, no. Trying to save that Atari joystick. Mike, Let's plan get speed up. to fruition to distract yeah. you at the crucial moment. And now I'm going to get stuck on this upward bend. Oh, come on.
5: This should be it. Oh. So you've got eight seconds to beat me. Oh, no, it depends on your misses. I think you're going to win. You've got less misses. Fewer misses.
2: Get over the line, There we go.
5: No. You did it. Because I had 3:45 as my end time. Really? Yeah. There's
2: four seconds in it. Yeah. It's a sort of you sort of think it's gonna do. That's it exactly does. That, that it, was 2001. 2001, and then a little bit of yeah, and then half of um, half of close encounters. Hmm.
5: you know the um, in Close Encounters the, that the, that synth that plays that in the film is a real synth it's, and we were talking earlier about the ARP 2600 it's the 2500 the one that came before it. it's a massive huge console and when the guy from ARP turned up with the synth no one could play it so he, it's him in the film that plays that does it on the thing
2: Do you know I didn't know that yeah and I've got all that stuff there about that film <laughs> and I still didn't know that <laughs>